All right, we're in Genesis chapter 5 this morning. <clears throat> and it's refreshing to know that in spite of our sinfulness and the fact that we deserve eternal death, God devised a plan for our redemption. And this plan can be traced all the way back to the Garden of Eden and his promise to Eve that she would bear a godly seed that would crush the head of the serpent Satan. And the genealogy of that promised seed now develops in chapter 5 of the book of Genesis. Now we've seen already how quickly sin embedded itself into the heart of man through the story of Cain and Abel. The first person born into the world becomes the first murderer. And the line of Cain is traced through the seventh generation to his son, whose name is Lamech. And that son brags about killing a man and how much more he will avenge himself than God would even avenge his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, uh, Cain. It's all a picture of human civilization moving farther and farther away from God. <clears throat> but while all that is developing, something else is developing as well. Parallel to this, and in great contrast to it, we see that God blesses Adam and Eve with another son whom they name Seth, and this son has been appointed by God to replace faithful Abel. And in that generation, men began to call or proclaim the name of the Lord. So now we have a list in chapter 5 of 10 generations of that faithful sea leading up to Noah, whose family will be the only ones to survive the coming flood. But even in this list that traces the heritage of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can find this in Genesis, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 3, also 1 Chronicles chapter 1, uh, we're reminded of the outcome of the curse because every person but one lives, bears children, and dies. But from this sad reminder that the wages of sin is death, we have three brief narratives that encourage us as members of the godly seed. <clears throat> First of all, in spite of the curse, Humanity still bore the image of God, and he blessed them with fruitfulness and long life. Secondly, in the story of Enoch, we see that we escape the curse of death by walking with God. And finally, in the words of Lamech, we find that in a sin-cursed world, there's hope for comfort and rest. Of course, our ultimate escape from these things and our hope rests in our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, once again, we are thankful that Jesus came into the world to provide our salvation. And Lord, his lineage goes all the way back to Adam, as we find in the New Testament, as well as such places here in the Old Testament. We're thankful, Lord, that he is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise you gave to Eve that one would come to destroy our enemy, the devil, and the result of sin, which is death. And as we look at these uh, 
words of scripture today encourage us that there is hope even though we are doomed to die. And that hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask your help and your blessing today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first thing we want to look at here in chapter 5 is in spite of the curse, humanity bears the image of God and is blessed by God. Now, this part is introduced, is introducing a new section here. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And we've mentioned in our study of uh, the book of Genesis that it's divided off in these ways uh, when we see that record of a genealogy or generations, or literally the word means begettings. And in Hebrew, the term is toledoth. And these toledoths separate uh, sections in the book of Genesis. The first one was back in chapter 2 and verse 4. So we have the story of creation, then we have the, the generation um, of, of the heavens and the earth described for us in the Garden of Eden, and that section now ends at the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5. And now we're having a genealogy that traces from Adam to the time of the flood, from Adam to Noah. And then we're going to see the generations of Noah. And then it's going to proceed to another group or family and stories that are connected to these people. <clears throat> and we should note here that this is in a book. And this book, of course, is not like modern-day books. It's more like a scroll in Old Testament times. And that means that there is source material that is in a written form. We're not exactly sure how this took place, but it's not just oral being handed down word by word, but now it's starting to be written down. Very likely that Adam wrote certain things that he kept them uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, in the family safe, if you will, and it's passed down to each generation, and they add to this book. And then Moses brings these things together. The Lord helps them compile them, and we have the Word of God today in this form. Now, Adam's genealogy begins with a reminder for us of God's intention for humanity in the first couple of verses. And what this does, it connects the godly line, the seed of the woman, with the blessing that God promised back in chapter 3, verse 15, unlike the record of Cain's genealogy, which is going in a different direction, divorced from the previous record. So what are we reminded of? First of all, that God created mankind in his likeness and his image. Now, what does that mean? Obviously, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a human form like we do, but he created us with certain uh, propensities, and uh, these would consist of intellect, and emotion and will. And that's what separates us from the animal kingdom. We're capable of thinking, at least most of us are. We're capable of reasoning, uh, of conversing, of making decisions and making plans. And we have a uh, deep-seated sense of feeling that covers a wide range of experience. And the first couple also were created morally innocent. They did not have a sinful nature. Of course, that changed when they sinned, 
And, and that nature was passed on to their offspring. So the image of God was marred. It wasn't removed. It wasn't lost. It wasn't destroyed. There is still a vestige of it today in every human being. But that image now is fallen uh, to the curse. Now, God also created them male and female. Okay? Uh, he, he created a male and female, verse 2. Now, we have a lot of hubbub today about gender identity. But God created two biological, biological genders, male, female. They are capable of reproducing after their kind, and their, their purpose is to populate the earth. We're all aware of the attempts of our generation to deny this and move into the area of unreality, uh, we need to stick with what God says, what his plan is, and accept that uh, he made men and women, male and female. Now, God blessed them and called them mankind or, or humanity. So even though they fell, he still blessed them. And humanity has its origins in Adam and Eve, and then we're tracing the line as that goes down, population of the earth increases, and this particularly is the the line of faith, the line of godliness, the line of the seed that Jesus will eventually come from in the future. All right, so the, the human race consists of men and women. It's developed into many ethnicities, but there's only one race. That's the human race. There's not white, there's not black, there's not red, there's not yellow. There's one race. We're all uh, of that race. We are of different ethnic backgrounds, but we are of the human race that God brought into existence and being. Now, God commanded them to multiply and to fill the earth. We're seeing that happening. But most importantly, they were to love and obey God. We find that they failed in that. They disobeyed God. God had to remove them from the garden, but he still forgave them. He provided them coverings so that when they went outside of the garden, they would be protected. They would be able to take care of themselves. He was gracious to continue his blessing and give them fruitfulness and long life. So let's see how that develops here on uh, the, the humanity. And we see God blessing mankind in verses 3 to 5. And Adam lived 130 years, got a son in his own likeness after his image, and named him Seth. So the first thing we have here is we have the blessing of that promised seed that God gave back in chapter 3 of Genesis and verse 15. So this child is born, his name is Seth, and then his son is Enosh. We, we were introduced to this at the end of the last chapter. And we noted that God appointed a, a replacement for Abel, Abel who walked with the Lord in faith, Abel who brought a sacrifice to God in faith, wanting to worship God in the right way. And now we find in Adam's 130th year, the appointed one finally comes. And we would assume that perhaps other children were born in this period of time. But this is the special one. This is the promised one that God is assuring that his, uh, his seed will continue into the future. So that is one of the blessings. 
Then we have this blessing of fruitfulness. It says that uh, uh, Adam bore sons and daughters. We don't know how many, probably quite a lot. But he lived 800 years, had sons and daughters, and that phrase is repeated each time we come to a new name, a new section. They had sons and daughters. They had more than one son, more than one daughter. So even in a fallen state, God's intention to fill the earth with humanity is being fulfilled. Now, parallel to the line of ungodly Cain and the development of civilization away from God, there always exists a faithful remnant of people who trust in God and proclaim his name. And the Lord assures us of that truth throughout the whole Bible. No matter how dire the situation may get, God is always reserving this faithful line of people. And then we see they have the blessing of a long life, a really long life. So long that some people doubt that this could be possible. They've lived almost a thousand years. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I'd rather live an extra eight or nine hundred years in heaven rather than on earth. But back then, things were a lot different. And we need to think about how they could live that long uh, before they died. Well, first of all, consider the climate. The climate was more temperate than it is now. Remember when God created the heavens and the earth, he separated the waters below from the waters above. And we believe what he did is he took the waters above and just made a great vapor canopy around the earth. And that would present, uh, prevent the harmful rays of the sun to come in and uh, shorten life. It also would create a kind of a terrarium-like um, atmosphere in which things would grow well. You'd have more than one growing season uh, during the year. And it would, it would be kind of like uh, an almost perfect paradise like you have closer to the equator in our world today. The food supply uh, very likely would have been more abundant even than it is now. <clears throat> of course, we have all kinds of machinery and things that will help us produce uh, great crops today. But it was probably no, more nutritious back then because God didn't ordain eating meat until after the flood. So the food itself was more nutritious, and uh, it was uh, uh, being produced through the labor of man, but still fruitful, and that took care of the uh, physical needs that a, a body needed to keep on moving forward and, and developing and living this long. We also have to remember that the nearer to creation that you lived, the more perfect your body would have been. And it would take numerous generations for diseases to develop, the gene pool to degrade, and harmful mutations to occur. And all of these would be, of course, the eventual effects of sin upon the human body. And after the flood... Uh, and all the catastrophic phenomena that occurred with that, the human lifespan began to significantly deteriorate. <clears throat> so that's how they could live that long in that pre-Diluvian age. However, even though the Lord blessed humanity, uh, the, the, the curse of death still reigned in that time. 
And that's implied in verse 3 when it says that Adam begot a son after his own image in his own likeness. Well, he still had the image of God, the likeness of God, but not like it once had been. Now he is a sinful creature, and that sinfulness is going to carry on to the next generation, the next generation, and that is why we are naturally born sinful. That sin has been passed on. Uh, Paul makes mention of this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, as, though, as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Sin came into the world through Adam, and death came into the world through Adam. So we see that sad phrase repeated throughout this whole section here. You'll note that after every record that this person died. He may have been 900-something years old, but in the end, he died. Even the godly line will eventually pass off the scene in death. It's a universal truth. You go anywhere uh, where there's a cemetery in the United States that has engraved uh, gravestones, you're going to see the name of a person, the date of their birth, the date of their death. He died, he died, she died, she died. And that's the way it is. Death is inescapable because sin perpetuates itself in every generation. However, this was not the case with one person in that list. Did you notice that? His name is Enoch. And so in Enoch, we see uh, that the curse can be escaped, that death can be escaped by walking with God. He died, he died, he died, and we get down to verse 21, and what do we read? In verse 24, Enoch walked with God. He didn't die, but he was not, for God took him. God snatched him up. He didn't go through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, I'm sure uh, that all these other fellows that are listed here called on the name of the Lord, but one man stands out above them all in his close, intimate relationship to the Lord, so close that one day in his walking with God, he found himself in heaven. Now, we're going to go to the book of Hebrews here because a comment is given about Enoch. He is one of the faithful that are mentioned here in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, which lists a lot of Old Testament saints who were uh, men and women of faith. They trusted God with their lives. And I want us to go to chapter 11 and verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. So we know that's what that means, that he didn't pass through death. And was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So what does it mean to walk with God? Well, first of all, it means to walk by faith. 
Some believe that Enoch literally walked with God, much like Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, of course, God is not a physical person, but you can detect his spirit. You can detect that he's there. In that way, I think he walked with God, but it wasn't so much in a literal sense. Uh, I believe he communed with God, and very likely God may have communed with him, maybe with an audible voice, maybe with a voice in his head, maybe in visions, maybe in dreams. But we're told in the New Testament that Enoch was a prophet. And so as a prophet, God spoke directly to them in some way, some form. And by faith, he received those communications from the Lord and spoke back to the Lord and had this very close relationship to the Lord that we call walking with him. And our life reflects that walking. So in chapter uh, uh, 11 of, of Hebrews, we see that his walk was one that was by faith. And he believed everything that God told him. Uh, he shared that with the generations in which he lived. And we'll see that in just a moment here. But he was a, 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 a person of faith, like Abel was. And even when we cannot verify everything by our physical senses, we need to be like Enoch and believe what God tells us in his word and walk by faith as he did, not by sight. We don't have to see things uh, to prove that they are real. We don't have to actually hear God speak or see God in some form as so many would like today. We simply need to take him in his word as we walk with him. But notice how the author of Hebrews put it here. He doesn't say that Enoch walked with God. What he says is that Enoch pleased God. So to walk with God is to walk with him by faith, but that means that you walk with him in order to please him in everything you do. That means that everything that Enoch did was with an attitude of wanting to please God, of doing the will of God as that will was revealed to him. So what's that mean? He went through life thinking uh, about pleasing God. Maybe he's saying, you know, is what I think pleasing to God? Is what I say pleasing to God? Is the way I'm living pleasing to God? Is how I spend my time pleasing to God? So this was the basis of Enoch's relationship with God. He wants to please him in everything that he do. And you can't do that without faith. So faith leads to pleasing God in everything that you do. And his life was so pleasing to God that one day the Lord just took him to heaven with him. Incidentally, that's the same verb that's used of Elijah being taken up into heaven. So he could no longer be found on this earth because the Lord took him up to be with himself. Now, I want you to flip over a couple of books in the New Testament just before the last book of Revelation and find the book of Jude, just one little chapter. But guess who's mentioned in that, cha- in that uh, one little book? Enoch is. So let's go to verse 14. And we see that to walk with God means to proclaim God. So we walk by faith, we walk in order to please God, and we're pro- proclaiming God as well. Verse 14 says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also. So Jude is is revealing here ungodly men and how they act. 
and what they think about. And he is pronouncing a judgment against them. And he's actually using Enoch as the person and what he says, what God gave him to say, to warn these people of the coming judgment. And this is what he says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, and which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So what is this proclamation about? To whom it is given? It's given to the ungodly. He mentions that four times. So to walk with God is to proclaim God to the generation in which you live. Now, do you remember who else was the seventh from Adam? You look at the line of Cain. The seventh from Adam was Lamech that son of Cain, who was also a man uh, slayer. And it seems that he and Enoch then would have been in the same generation. They would have been contemporaries. But one is of an ungodly line, and one is of a godly line. And so what Cain is doing is he's projecting the judgment of God on that ungodly line that lived in the age in which he lived. And, of course, they're pulls apart in how they lived. He's of the seed of the Lord, the seed of the woman, and Lamech is of the seed of Satan, the serpent. So the type of people that Jude is referencing in Enoch uh, were being denounced of the same character as those of Lamech in the days of Enoch. They're ungodly. Now, for these reasons, one day God decided to take Enoch to be with him. He no longer existed on this earth. They looked for him. It couldn't be found because God took him into heaven. And perhaps Enoch will be one of the witnesses that we see in the book of Revelation and that that's when he will die for his testimony to the Lord. All right. So the only way we can escape the curse of sin is to walk with the Lord, as Enoch did. Now, the last thing we want to look at here is in verses 28 to 32, and this is what is spoken to us through Lamech, another man named Lamech. This is not the same one as in chapter 4. And we find in what Lamech says here that in a sin-cursed world, there is still hope for comfort and rest. Now, Let's look at that. Verse 28. Lamech lived 182 years, and he had a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. So he had some kind of hope, some kind of faith in his son Noah of good things to come. Now note here that this is the only instance in this genealogy where it tells us a father names his son. He names his son. He calls his son Noah. So there's some reason he has to name him that. 
he's reflecting uh, his hope of the future in the naming of that son. Now, what's weighing on Lamech? It seems that he's growing weary of life itself, of the curse and the difficulty of life that that brings upon us. Notice he connects what he says to the curse. Uh, Concerning our work, the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. So what's he doing? He's connecting this back uh, uh, to the garden, to the curse that came upon the ground because of the disobedience of Father Adam and his wife Eve. And he's He's telling us that generations later, seven generations later, the curse hasn't gone anywhere. The curse is still causing us to toil. It's it's causing us to have a hard life. It's it's causing us to sweat by the the labor of our hands. And he's just feeling the the weight of that, that it's just kind of an endless turmoil to sustain life, to keep on going, and he wants some relief from this. And so in that hope, he names his son Noah. And maybe, maybe he even thought, well, maybe this son will be the one that, that God promised to Eve that will come and, and crush Satan's head and deliver us from the effects of this terrible curse. So what does the name of Noah mean then? What is the significance of it? Well, Noah's name actually means rest. But it sounds like the other word here, the word comfort. So if you could sound it out in the Hebrew, it would sound very close to comfort. You say Noah, it sounds like the, the, the word comfort. It's not connected etymologically, but it's connected phonetically. And so you're connecting together his true name, which means rest. That's connected to this labor issue. But also comfort. Those two things come together. And those are the things that he's hoping for in this long life of hundreds of years of laboring this way under the curse and somehow getting relief from all of that. Well, how is that hope ever realized? Didn't really come in the days of Lamech, did it? As far as we know, Noah personally never did anything to bring any kind of relief from the curse. And by the days of Noah... The world was in a real mess. If you look at chapter 6, this is what is said about it. Verse 5. This is in the days of Noah. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was so great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every single person in the world of that day, which would have numbered in the billions, could not entertain a thought about God, except Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. 
You think the world's bad today, folks? Be glad you weren't living back then. Because the godly line was totally wiped out except for one family. We got more than that right here in our little church. We think it's bad because of the new present we have. We think it's going to get worse. Not anything like it was back then. So we need to be hopeful and confident and looking forward to what God's going to do. So how do you think Noah, that one man with his little family, could bring any kind of comfort and rest into a world where nobody believed in God? Well, Noah couldn't do anything, but God could. So what did God do? Well, God would use Noah to actually provide a new beginning for humanity. In a sense, Noah would become a new Adam. Because the whole race is going to be wiped out by the flood. All the evil people are going to be judged. But God's going to keep that godly line going. And there's going to be a new generation. Starts off right. People believing in God. He's going to keep that promise going. And do you know when that promise is completed? It's completed when the second Adam shows up, the last Adam, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's really kind of uh, prefiguring the old and the new. The first Adam failed, and eventually that failure affected the whole world except one family. God preserved that one family. He's a new Adam that starts all over again, but even then we know failure is going to succeed until we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam. So then how do we make application of all this? How do we take our place in the generation of the godly seed? Well, few thoughts here. First of all, by bearing the image of God in Christ in the world in which we live. I'm sure you'll agree that the Lord still graciously blesses people in the world. He allows them to be prosperous, to be fruitful. In many cases, they live a long and productive life, but they're responsible to turn to him in faith repent of their sins, and be saved. And the ones who do this then have, uh, in a sense, their image of God regenerated. They're, They're brought to spiritual life, and they can live out that image of God, the image of Christ that God says we're supposed to have. And by walking with Christ every day, we bear that image. Jesus took upon himself the curse of our sin when he died on the cross. He became a curse for us. So when we turn to him in faith, he removes the effects of the curse and he gives us eternal life. Unfortunately, we'll probably have to pass through that experience of death unless the Lord comes first, but he's going to meet us on the other side. And in the meantime, between now and then, 
what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to walk with God like no, like Enoch did. Listen to what Colossians chapter 2 says. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Colossians 2, 6, and 7. That's how we become pleasing in his sight, to walk with him. And then finally this morning, by trusting the Lord Jesus for comfort and rest in a world that's still cursed by sin. Remember what Jesus told his disciples? He told them, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Lamech's desire is fulfilled in Christ. He's the one who'll give us rest and comfort. And do you remember in the Gospel of John, Shortly before Jesus was crucified, he was teaching his disciples. Do you remember what he said he would do? He would send to you what? Another comforter, the Holy Spirit. So the Lord Jesus is our rest. He's our comfort. The Holy Spirit's our comforter. He's residing within us. So what better hope could we have as we toil and labor on this side of eternity? Then the Lord Jesus as our rest, as our hope, as we walk with him until he takes us home. Heavenly Father, we pray your blessing on your word today. We're thankful for, for the lessons that we learn from the book of Genesis. Lord, uh, unfortunately, we are in that group of people, as Adam and Eve were, that sin against you. Lord, we have no choice but to sin. That's the way we're born. doesn't take long for that to show itself. But Lord, we're thankful that Jesus came, uh, the last Adam, the one who lived a perfect and holy life and was willing to lay down that life and sacrifice in our place so that we could have new life, so we could bear your image to a lost world. We could walk with you and have the hope of peace and rest and comfort, not waiting for heaven to get it, but, Lord, to be able to experience it even now. So, Lord, help us to be encouraged by these words as we walk with you today and every day. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.